Hey everyone, this is Jeannie, I use she, her pronouns, and you're listening to Sex Talk Happy Hour, a podcast hosted by the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and it's right around the corner. In my circle of friends, it's also known as the time when Jeannie is a little too busy to respond to texts and definitely can't hang out with you. (laughs) Sorry. In all seriousness, though, this is a time when sexual assault advocates kick it into high gear. We respond to an increase in calls on hotlines. We see more events and educational workshops being requested and scheduled, oftentimes on weeknights and weekends. We see citywide efforts to raise awareness. In other words, it's a really, really busy time. So make sure that you send some extra love and maybe some extra coffee to your friends in the sexual violence prevention field. Trust me when I say we definitely need it. Now, normally, our self-care heads-up is given right before our interview begins, but this time around, I actually think it's appropriate to give one right now. We're going to be talking about an infamous rape case that happened in Steubenville, Ohio in 2012. Maybe you remember it, or maybe you've never heard of the case. Either way, I want you all to be aware of today's topic. We won't be going into any kind of graphic detail, but we do know that sometimes hearing about a violent act can be triggering in and of itself. So if you need to not listen today, we encourage and support that and want you to do whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. So turn this off and head over to the next thing that makes you happy and brings you joy. We'll give you a second. Okay, so one thing that we advocates see every April is an uptick in the number of documentaries about sexual violence. Some of the most famous ones that you might have heard of are The Hunting Ground, Audrey and Daisy, and The Invisible War. You can probably add to that list Roll Red Roll, a new documentary that just opened last week about the infamous case in Steubenville, Ohio. In case you don't remember the case or haven't heard of it, here's some information just so you have a heads up. Steubenville is a small town in Ohio, a football town, where two of the star football players at the local high school sexually assaulted an unconscious 16-year-old girl at a party. There are many details that truly stick out about the Steubenville case. One such detail is the presence of many, many bystanders who not only didn't intervene, but actively took part in spreading photos and videos while laughing about the incident. Other partygoers were tweeting and sending text messages back and forth in group texts, and one student even filmed a video of himself and his friends laughing about the assault. Predictably, the online harassment, victim blaming, and bullying after the assault is part of the story. In my personal memory, Steubenville is one of the first cases I remember where social media played such a prominent role. It was actually a case that really brought that to the forefront. Regardless, this case was set to be ignored and swept under the rug for a variety of reasons had it not been for a crime blogger, Alexandria Goddard, who did some very clever snooping on Twitter and found many students talking about this case and the victim very openly and very publicly. I won't repeat what some of the tweets said, but you can trust that some of them are quite horrible. She took screenshots of these tweets and Facebook posts and posted them to her blog. Still, Even with her post, this case was posed to be largely ignored. That is, until Anonymous got involved. If you aren't familiar with Anonymous, take a quick Google. They are most often described as quote-unquote hacktivists, are sometimes associated with the Guy Fawkes white mask from the film V for Vendetta, and have been involved with some of the most famous hacking cases nationally and globally. Anonymous decided to leak a 12-minute video of some of the partygoers laughing and mocking the victim during and after the party. In the truest sense, the video went viral, and that is when national news organizations decided to pick up the story. 
Roll Red Roll is a documentary about this case, directed by Nancy Schwartzman. Schwartzman has long used storytelling as a means to educate the world about violence against women and girls, and Roll Red Roll is her most recent work. It actually just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, too. I got to speak with Nancy about the documentary, about her thoughts and process on creating this film, and what she felt were the most important messages to include for the viewer. I highly recommend watching the film, though please do know that it does come with a trigger warning. I will include details at the end on how to find out more, but for now, I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Nancy and that it inspires you to go out and watch the film. Hi, I am Nancy Schwartzman, um, she, her, hers, and I am a documentary filmmaker. Awesome. Nancy, well, thank you so much. We are having you on because of the most recent film that you directed, Roll Red Roll, which is the Steubenville case uh, in Ohio. So I'm going to fill our listeners in sort of at the beginning about the Steubenville case, but why did you choose this particular case? What about this case stood out to you? You know, there were a few things that stood out to me about this case. I had made a film prior about sexual consent. Um, I've also been interested. I made another film about teenagers and technology. And, you know, this film kind of the story had all of those pieces. It was an opportunity to look at a story about sexual assault that didn't center or hinge on a victim and the victim's testimony. I felt really strongly, if I'm going to explore this topic again, I really want to get into the mindset and the behavior of perpetrators and bystanders and really understand and look at, take take the spotlight off of the victim. As you know, in this podcast, you've interviewed so many survivors. It's always hinging on us to come forward and have you empathize and please believe us and all the stuff. And it's like, why are we not actually studying what predation looks like? Why are we not analyzing the culture so that we can spot it, call it out and shift it? And I think um, the combination of the social media being so public and also just being so flagrant and really descriptive about perpetration and about witnessing, it was things that I was really passionate about all kind of coalescing in that story. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that we have a tendency to focus on victimhood and we don't actually take a look at what real prevention looks like. So I, I think that's that's a really great point. I know that the I watched the documentary. It was amazing. And uh, I know that the documentary itself is very, very focused on specifically Steubenville. But I'm just curious whether or not you looked into other similar cases, anything else that to kind of help you uh, inform the the style that you directed the, the documentary in. I mean, you know, I've, I've been doing anti-violence work for a long time, so really familiar with so many stories of so many different kinds of assaults, and a lot of patterns, though, seem to sort of <laughs> pop up, right? So I went to a high school, we didn't have a football team, but we certainly had a very robust rape culture. So sometimes people ask, like, how were you able to be in the edit room for a year in that material? I was like, that school reminds me of my high school and those kids remind me of kids I knew and went to school with and possibly wanted to date or possibly had a bad experience with you know so it was very familiar to me but how we crafted the story and were really careful about it was you know I really wanted to address and encourage men to be part of the solution in preventing rape culture so we crafted the film like a thriller right it's like this docu-thriller and it has evidence and there's intrigue and it has this like kind of heavy metal music and this energy in the football because you know women don't don't really need this film like we live it we know the story this is not new to us 
what is the language that I can use in the filmmaking that appeals to a different audience? Because so often when you present a film or start a film about sexual violence and people are like, oh, great, well, we'll have the women's center come. And, you know, it's like everybody's welcome to come, but actually this is for the football team and this is for, you know, the athletes. So I, I certainly, like, keep up with the news and read about different stories of sexual violence, but there are just certain... Um, patterns that seem to emerge in all and in, in so many of the stories right so even in the Steubenville case if you listen to Dr. Blasey Ford's Dr. Christine Ford's um, testimony and you hear her talking about the laughter burning into her hippocampus and having never forgotten that and how just so many details of what she talks about Brett Kavanaugh are, are just like parallel in the Steubenville case. Yeah. So I have a question around, uh, I think that's a really great frame of reference to, for our listeners to hear about, because I'm sure a lot of folks will come across this documentary over the next couple of weeks as it opens in a, just a couple days, right? I know that one major criticism that I've heard just being in the field that I'm in of similar documentaries. So we're thinking about Leaving Neverland and Surviving R. Kelly and all these um, similar types of docu-series or documentaries or sort of informational videos and, and, and movies that we see. I know that one criticism I hear often is that these stories can often be treated as a form of entertainment, right? And so, like, I, for example, I've heard people describe the R. Kelly documentaries as, oh, it's really good, which I don't doubt that it is, right? And that they experience the documentary as being really good, but also knowing that friends of mine and, and colleagues of mine who are survivors would probably feel a certain type of way around the way that was phrased. It's, you know, our survivor stories are not entertaining. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts around that, because I did kind of clock the use of the word thrilling. Um, and I totally, once you explain it, understand the use of that word. But I'm curious about um, if you have any response or thoughts around that. Yeah. So I don't say thrilling. It's more a thriller. And that's a genre of a film, right? It's a true crime thriller. But you're right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a certain kind of word to use to describe a film. But the bottom line is that we're filmmakers, right? And you are not going to get anywhere if you make something that is boring, that is a lecture, that is dull, that is badly told, that isn't held together well. It doesn't serve the story, number one, and it doesn't serve the cause. So there are plenty of academic papers. There are plenty of statistics back when the CDC was, you know, probably doing a better job of it. I mean, there's plenty of places to get cold, hard facts to get witness or victim testimony unfettered, uncut, you know, just bare and out there. There's all of that information. And and I think as storytellers, we know statistics don't change hearts and minds. We have a job as filmmakers is to make you watch, to keep you watching. Now, is something exploitative? That's awful. Is something unethical? That's unethical and not okay. Are you telling a st- are you crafting a story that's well told? That's your job. That's your job as a filmmaker. So I know when I show my film and it's to a room full of 19-year-old young women or queer people, I'm always like, oh crap. Because my film is hard hitting. You know why? Because I want men to watch it. And all the men that reviewed it are like, whoa, it's visceral. It's like a gut punch. It's like finally you guys are paying attention. So how am I going to get you to pay attention by trotting out another victim in this sort of huge emphasis on us, 
you know, please empathize with this person. And do you believe her? It's like, I am so tired of that. That is a burden we should not have to shoulder and carry anymore. Now, does that mean for a 19 year old young person who might recently be the victim of sexual assault, my film is easy? Absolutely not. I look, when I look in those rooms, I'm always like, oh gosh, I really don't want to hurt anyone. You know, we just showed the film. I was in Prague and they have, if you can imagine, like a education program that brings teenagers to see hard-hitting documentary films. And my film was chosen to go to 40 cities and to, to go with teenagers. And I showed 400 kids in Prague over three days the film. And, you know, they look, obviously sexual assault is happening everywhere, but they do not live in a violent culture the way we do. Their culture is so different that every young man in the room was like, devastated by what he saw and some girls ran out crying I felt terrible it's like these are young people this is so in your face but at the same time nobody leaves my film saying oh what happened wasn't a big deal oh I don't recognize this behavior in my own social group so entertaining is is definitely a problematic word but well told and gripping I mean that's our jobs Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. I think that was was probably really good for our listeners to hear because I think um, one thing that comes up for me in my work is that our goals are different. Um, that my goal as an advocate for survivors is definitely, they're not misaligned, but they're different. That I'm providing services and trauma-informed care and I'm providing trigger warnings. If I were to be an advocate in one of your screenings, I'd probably be the kind of person that someone would come and talk to if they did feel triggered. Um, whereas your job is to tell the story and to show how important this is and why it's so, A, why it's so egregious and B, why it is so commonplace and why it happens. So uh, I really appreciate the, the clarification that you provided. So that actually is really well sort of into my next question, which, and you sort of already started answering this, which is sort of like when you started this process, what were the main messages you were trying to convey through the film? Yeah, that's a great question. One thing that I really wanted to dispel was that what happened to Jane Doe wasn't a big deal. And a lot of people in town and a lot of people in the world were really invested in telling me and, you know, blathering on radio programs or whatever that, oh, it's a he said, she said. And, oh, you know, the rape myth that it has to be in- incredibly violent and it's a bunch of strangers and da-da-da-da-da. You know, so everybody's saying it wasn't a big deal because it wasn't violent enough was very similar to my experience when I was raped and came forward and made a film about it. It's like, well... You know, you, I mean, he didn't punch you. It's like, how bad does it have to be for us to take things seriously? So everybody was very invested. A lot of people were invested in telling me it was no big deal what happened. And actually, there were five young men in a room with an incapacitated girl, and two of them assaulted her, and three of them were eyewitness, taking photos, within five feet of somebody. And all of these people want to tell me that they weren't involved. They didn't do anything. You're, you're right. They didn't do anything. And that's a problem. Like, why are we, no parent should be okay with their kids stepping over somebody and watching at close range and tweeting about it, nonetheless, or texting. But, but none of that is okay. And how we talk about young girls or anyone who's in the center of something like this, as if we know what happened, like the way certain radio personalities talk about it and the way people talked about Dr. Ford. Like if you dive into weird Instagram 
tunnels and that they don't even have to be that extreme, right? I was like looking at some outdoorsy stuff and hunting stuff, right? And there's like a thing about Dr. Ford and her not remembering. And I'm like, wow, okay, wow. Okay, where does victim blaming just like float in? So the, it's not a big deal was something I really wanted to dispel. The um, victim blaming piece of it, which is just throughout the film, it's so embedded in the whole narrative. It's how we actually enable rape culture and enable the culture to continue. It's just baked in. So I wanted to show that at every level, young girls uphold it. Young girls are part of upholding rape culture. Adult men are talking about children in a way that's so harmful. And, you know, and then there's some folks who just like sort of don't know better because they're your grandparents' age. And I think most of us would not want to hear my my grandfather's response to sexual gender equity grandpa let's talk about it like you know so so in that way there are folks in the community that are very normal and like anyone else's grandparent but I also wanted to look at masculinity and you know there's a debate whether we call it toxic masculinity or harmful masculinity whatever it's pretty toxic in this film and that's that's a big part of something we wanted to explore. Yeah, I definitely, I, and I think all three of those themes came through really well in your documentary, so you did a, a really great job <laughs> of finding that balance. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing, because we hear a lot about masculinity stuff, too, and I think a lot of people, uh, when we criticize toxic masculinity or harmful masculinity or traditional masculinity, even, whatever you want to call it, I think a lot of people hear that as, you have to be feminine. I think a lot of the pushback against those types of terms or criticisms of toxic masculine behaviors is it immediately goes to the other side. It's like, oh, so do you just want me to be a woman? Which, first of all, what's wrong with being a woman? And second of all, you know, no, we're saying that there are certain aspects of traditional masculinity that are really harmful. So, and that's actually a question that's a little further down my list, but I'm going to go there anyway because you, you led me here, which is I, one thing I noticed about the documentary is that it's really focused on the sexual assaults and how it kind of came to be known to the greater public. So the involvement of the blogger, Anonymous getting involved, and I would love to touch on that later if that's okay. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any additional thoughts from researching this case, from your personal experiences from the high school you went to, about generally groupthink and or toxic masculinity that you would like to expand upon here? Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating to me. I don't have a lot of big data. I just wanted to dive in and look at, you know, these kids and what is the norm and whatever is sort of normalized and how easy it is for people to sort of go along with the larger culture. And what I talk about when I try to do some education work is like, we act like rape is inevitable. We act like when we're upholding rape culture and patriarchy, we said, well, what do you expect when you go to a party with football players? I don't know. What do I expect? I was just going to go to a party and have a beer and have a good time. Like, why are we acting like rape is something we cannot prevent Rape is something that just ultimately happens. It's like a thunderstorm and we can't do anything about it. And it's like, uh, no, actually, there are so many points of intervention along the way. And this could have been interrupted in many instances. So in terms of group think, we're all like programmed to just be in this culture, right? And it's layer upon layer, whether it's the radio DJ, whether it's the advertisement, whether it's the old guy at the shop, whether it's the coach, whether it's someone telling you to be a man, whether it's 
girls being told their only value is whether they can attract a good man, you know, whether it's being in a community that has no women in leadership. If football's that important, there's no counter sport that includes women. If the Catholic church is the core church in your community, there are no women in leadership there. So it's like, oh my God, this is a tinder box of, of how all of this happens. So in terms of group think, I did have a conversation with someone who's done a lot of studies and I was trying to differentiate between the boys in my film. Like, well, maybe this one, cause there's a good, there's a, a guy who does intervene verbally in my film and I make a point to make sure you meet him and know him and hear that he was just like his moral compass was straight and true and was like, this is not funny and this is not okay. Right. So we have him. He's very clear. Then you have the very clear perpetrator, Trent Mays, who's sort of ID'd as the ringleader, who's really kind of setting it up and making it happen. Then you have everyone in between. I was able to get to know a lot of the characters through their text messages. And so some of the ones who even seem to be in the middle and not that bad actually were pretty bad. We're sort of running information to both sides enjoying the power of having information um, the kid who made the YouTube video. You know, when I was talking to the expert, I was like, well, he didn't physically harm anyone and he wasn't in the room. What do we think about him? And he was like, you know what? If he had been in the room, we don't know what he would have done. Like one day he's not in the room, another day he's in the room. So it is really about shifting the culture because it's not, you know, we try to differentiate between the good kids and the bad kids. We all have the propensity to do harm and we all have the propensity to do good, right? So we need we need better structures, we need laws that are really clear, we need accountability, we need behavioral and cultural, we just like need all of these things to make sure that our groupthink is bending towards justice and ethical behavior. Oh, I love everything you just said. I'm like I'm nodding emphatically. Our listeners can't see me, but I think that's that's at the core of what I'm trying to do and what a lot of us are trying to do right now, which is being able to name that any single one of us actually does have the potential to perpetrate. And then if you forget about that, you're at most at risk of perpetrating, right? And I think that's a message we don't tell our kids regardless of gender and it's a message we should be telling our kids because you know who knows whether or not this would have happened if that was messaging that was received by some of these boys in this particular case and so i hear you talking about systems right which is uh, which is the agencies that are meant to help survivors agencies that represent the perpetrators right in the civil the criminal legal system the civil systems the nonprofit systems the education system and then just generally like society as a system right and so i'm wondering about when you were creating the film or just kind of throughout the process did you get to collaborate with any rape crisis agencies or experts? If so, who and if not, why? Yeah, I guess, you know, I did that a lot. Certainly we have robust partners for our outreach, impact, and education campaign. But as a filmmaker, I, again, am doing my work to tell the story. This was not my first rodeo in terms of making a rape film. My first film, The Line, I made that was released in 2009 was my first exploration into how do I craft a film successfully about rape and try to bring audiences to a deeper understanding of what is consent and who deserves consent and that there's no such thing as a perfect victim. So that was my first film. And I have sex workers in my film. 
who taught me a lot about their tactics for negotiating consent and or saying, you know, well, I set my price high if it's something I'm uncomfortable with. One of the sex workers in my film was the only person to validate my experience of rape just so clearly, really crystal clear. You said yes to this. You did not say yes to this. It is not okay. Nobody else managed to do it in my film, right? So I love having those women in my film and I got a lot of pushback from certain nonprofits. This was in 2009, 2010 for having sex workers have voice in my film and not be victims essentially. How, how can you have them, you know, and, and my film was shown in military institutions and some military officers, their minds would explode that people who make money from sex are smart. I mean, it's just like, it, it caused a lot of ripples So that was like an early taste into, okay, here we all are with this agenda of really trying to eradicate rape culture, but wow, do we look at these things from really different perspectives. So it was my first taste of some nonprofits in the women's sector who didn't want to touch my film um, from a mile away. The the line had had fantastic impact um, with educators and on college campuses and was really like blew up this conversation. So I just, I, I lay that out to say I'm very wary of everyone and their agendas, especially in the nonprofit arena, because I'm also a filmmaker and I'm not an advocacy filmmaker. I'm a survivor, but I'm not going to make propaganda, right? Like I have an agenda, but I'm also really open. So that's the line I choose to walk as a filmmaker. So with Roll Red Roll, um, I'd already, I'm kind of known in anti-violence space, so I have a lot of partners in general because of my tech app. And I, I, I feel lucky that there was a lot of trust. People are like, you know what, I, we, we trust you. And it was certainly nerve-wracking to show the final film to a lot of nonprofits that I respect to say, do you back this? Do you want to get behind it? Um, most importantly, in some ways, were the Cleveland and Columbus Rape Crisis Centers, local people who knew not just the gory details of the crime, but how rough it was for people in the town. So what was more important to me was that the film, although it's brutal, is also fair. You know, because a lot of folks from various news outlets swept in and they're like, broken down buildings and idiotic football is bad. You know, all these like very easy, broad strokes types of things. So in terms of like filmmaking choices, I would never go outside my team for those in a way, or my community of storytellers, essentially, because I'm a survivor also, and I've been in the space for 10 years. If it's a new field, if I'm stepping into uh, an arena I know nothing about, that's when you go to organizations and say, okay, what, like, what are the politics? What's going on in scuba diving conflicts or whatever, um, where you're just trying to understand the landscape quickly. So I felt like I had done my due diligence and understood the landscape But I definitely was nervous when I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I hope I don't want anyone to see this as like I came in with an agenda and trashed this town, which is not what happened. Um, So, yeah, we're working with great partners, um, Coaching Boys into Men, It's On Us, Promunda, Men Can Stop Rape, and Rape on Campus, um, Black Women's Blueprint, just like a lot of like great groups. Yeah, those are all groups I've heard of that I admire very deeply. And thank you so much for for sharing that and also for for sharing your your story. I can see that that was a big informer in terms of what you did. And and to say that, you know, listeners, I have I've watched the film and there's a they do a really good job of capturing the nuance of how everyone got swept up into this. So, um I think you all did a really excellent job with that. One thing that's really unique to Steubenville that is not usually present is the involvement of anonymous 
And for listeners who don't know, anonymous is um, sort of an act, an anonymous activism hacktivism group. There are a bunch of expert hackers who have, and you can Google and Wikipedia them, and um, they've get, gotten involved in a lot of different cases, um, including Steubenville. So I'm actually, I would love to hear your personal thoughts, if you're open to sharing them, on generally about the involvement of anonymous and, and why you think they picked up this story. Yeah. I, I want to also throw out there that Roll Red Roll is a 80 minute film and we weren't able to obviously include everything we wanted to. Um, so we're releasing a short with um, Gucci, Tribeca and The Guardian. So it'll be on theguardian.com in late April, which is a lot of the stuff that didn't make it into the film, which is looking more closely at Anonymous. And what does it mean when your town gets blown up by a bunch of outsiders, essentially? So in this case, it also kind of unpacks, like, what is Anonymous? Um, You know, and Anonymous is a loose coalition of people. Some are hackers, some are not. In in the West Virginia town, the kids who get involved are locals, and they're kind of boots on the ground. They help disseminate information. They showed up in front of the courthouse wearing sinister masks. They held signs up that said, like, you know, we want justice. This is not okay. One of them even brought the AV equipment to turn what was a little bit of a disorganized stand around into hours and hours of women coming forward and telling their stories. There's something amazing about just some, so simple as this, this kid saying, I got there, nothing was really happening. If CNN shows up here tomorrow after they release the Nodianis video and there's nothing here, I'm bringing speakers and a mic. And he's like, when the women started speaking, it just became this women's movement. And his mind was blown. And there's a young man who's there who, you know, he got excited because Anonymous was like, oh, nothing, nothing like this ever happens around here. These guys are standing up to the bullies. So in some ways, even local guys were bullied by the football team, right? So some guys got involved with it because it was different and fun and was opportunity to do something different. Everybody was moved and touched by the rallies. So sorry, I went on a little tangent about our new short film that's going to be out in a couple weeks. Totally fine. But what was your question? Well, just your general thoughts, actually, about the involvement of uh, Anonymous. Because, you know, as listeners, once you watch the film, you'll know that there was a crime blogger who picked up on this case and started picking it apart. But it didn't really seem to go anywhere on a national level, at least, until Anonymous got involved. Um, And so I was just wondering what your personal thoughts were on that. Yeah, so... I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, Anonymous, in this particular case, really, I I feel like what a lot of locals said to me, especially women and survivors, made it really clear that they felt like if Anonymous hadn't gotten involved, the case would have been swept under the rug. And that's deep, man. This is a woman, one woman speaks, and she hadn't told anyone in 40 years. And she said, look, if that group hadn't come in, when the police sent me home saying, I know you're attacker, he's a good guy, like, how am I going to, how are we ever going to change things if people, if this hadn't happened? So in this particular case, it's, it was really positive. Um, anonymous isn't always white hat. You know, they also do other stuff that they can, you know, it just depends on what they decide and, and what op is being organized. But in this particular case, um, it inspired a lot of people. I think there's something really powerful about being in a small community and being gifted your anonymity. 
How else do you shake the status quo when everyone knows each other? When if you speak out about a rape, it's going to affect your business. And it's not so much that people in town all think rape is fine. It's more just like, don't disturb the status quo. Like, these are the people in power. We can crush you. Like, and, and that's just a microcosm of how we all behave around like those structures of power and how we're bullied into complicity or nothing can change here. This is how it is. This is how it's always been. So putting that little mask on, that plastic mask, enabled people to, to speak up in front of their neighbors that they never would have done without it. It's, it's kind of amazing to me. It's amazing what can be done when people feel like they have permission to be honest, for sure. And yeah, I agree with you. I actually, unfortunately, do think that if Anonymous hadn't picked this up, this case probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, and so in that way, I am grateful to them, for, for sure. So I know that we, we still do not know Jane Doe, who she is, where she's at. We don't know if she's still in Steubenville or somewhere else, and that is fine. <laughs> um, and so I know that the, the answer to this is probably no, but I wanted to ask if, if there was ever a way to consult with Jane Doe or her family, if you were, if you attempted to do that, if you didn't attempt to do that and why, just sort of your thought process around that. Yeah. Well, so Jane Doe is from a town across the river. So she's not actually from Steubenville and the two towns have an old longstanding rivalry and they're two different States and there's a river between them. So in her case, she had some distance and didn't have to go to school there, didn't have to be in the same church, didn't have to ever see them at the restaurants. You know, it's like, it was a different world. Um, I know some other survivors who are from Jane Doe's town who like never cross the river, never. And it just is like a barrier that makes them feel much better. So Jane Doe had a really supportive family, really supportive community and church and all these things to just like back her and protect her and shield her. So she didn't have to like walk down those high school halls every day like other victims in the school had to do. So from the beginning, I had I reached out to Jane Doe's attorney, who's her representative, and said, you know, I want you to know I'm making this film and this is who I am with her lawyer. And I wrote, you know, detailed letters, but I was very, very upfront about, you know, that I'm a survivor and I'm an advocate and I've made a, a White House award-winning, you know, mobile app for survivors and I am not interested in an interview. I am making this film and I'm going to protect her every step of the way. So I made that clear and I communicated through her lawyer as was asked of me to do. That's awesome. And did you ever hear either from her or any, anything like that? Like any, so it's just all through the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you know if she's going to see the film or if she does see the film eventually? Is there a particular message you'd love for her to hear if she somehow happens to be a listener on our podcast? Oh, I mean, I just wish her the best and admire her. I think I would echo those sentiments. So we've talked about masculinity. We've talked about the perpetrators. I really love your framing of let's focus on the perpetrators, right? And we, we know the victim stories because the patterns are there in every story, right? Um, and so I, I actually really love the way you phrase that. And so I would love to talk about the bystanders, which is a big part of this particular story. And in particular, I'd love to talk about Sean McGee, which is the young man you were referring to earlier who actually did speak out and say, this is not okay, this is rape. And and for listeners, there is a young man who, who you will hear say that in the documentary. So I would love to hear what your thoughts are on Sean McGee and or the Sean McGee's of the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need we need all those Sean's out there. Um, I so admire that, you know, he was able to recognize immediately that this was not funny. He was just raised differently and, you know, not pay a social cost for standing up. I think 
in in any town, you know, we're also working on an interactive game about this, not about sexual assault per se, but about bullying and peer pressure called reputation, right? Where the goal is to be popular. So the points that you rack up are around popularity and you are in it. If if anyone wants to be a test player as we build it out, you're most welcome. But, you know, if your goal is to be popular, what are you going to do to achieve that, right? So you have your inner compass always as a person, but we know what the bigger goal is, right? So what I appreciate about Sean is that he had that compass, but he also has the social capital to get to say no, because he's a great athlete and he's popular, right? He's well-liked. He's not the nerd that kids bully. He's not an outsider or not from around here, you know? No, he's a kid. Like he's well-liked. He's popular. He's hanging out and he's, he didn't pay the price. So we need more of those guys supported by coaches and supported by teachers and supported by administrators to say, this is the culture we uphold at this school. This is what we call sportsmanlike. This is what it means to be a basketball player or a wrestler or a football player. This is how you behave. Everyone needs to do it. And then it's easier for the Sean McGee's to speak up. It's easier because that's just the culture, right? So I think it's worth noting, you know, Sean's a young man. He's African-American. I don't think African-American young men can act with impunity the way white kids can in that town, right? So I think Sean was probably taught that lesson by his parents early on. Like, you don't get to do that. If if guys are doing that, you don't do that because they're going to come down hard on you, right? So those are certain lessons being ingrained, whereas if you're the Brock Turners of the world and you're told that you can do whatever you want, well, you're going to do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm hearing you allude to is privilege. And in in this particular case, we're talking about racial privilege, but privilege as a man, privilege as a straight person, privilege as a wealthy kid or a popular kid. So uh, I, I think... Something that is very subtle that comes through your film really well is that that privilege piece, and I and I actually think um, it's largely a conversation about intersectionality as well because Sean McGee's was a very popular young man. He was an athlete, you know, he was very well liked. He was also black, and there are a lot of ways this could have gone down differently if one factor had been different. So I actually really appreciate you calling that into the space because I think a lot of people shy away from that. <laughs> so I want to ask about like your experience with this because we've, we've been talking about the film and, and listeners, I can't reiterate how many times you, you definitely should go see it. But what for you as a director, as a person who is an advocate, who is a survivor, who has been doing this for years and years, what was the best part for you of getting to make this film? Oh, that's a, a fun question because I can look back on the years and years and years it took to make it (laughs) well it's such a you know I was I was about to say it's such a privilege to get to make films and it really is but it's also a job and we documentary filmmakers should be paid better to do it (laughs) so I don't want to live on fumes and and do it because I'm passionate about it but it's so amazing to get to be on the road get to dive into people's lives get to really explore something and follow threads and and walk the line of like I have an idea I think what's happening I have to hold my gut like what does my gut need to do I need to be really open to everything I need to stick but I also need to be really grounded it's like this amazing tightrope of like letting a story unfold and also holding true to your vision 
and figuring out what your vision is when all of these doors are slamming shut in your face, right? Which is basically documentary filmmaking is just one no after the other. So you end up, okay, well, we'll make a film from this and this and this and, you know, do it. So, yeah, I guess the best part, I, I had so much growth on this film, you know, really uh, learned so much and that's always really exciting and having funders and supporters who who stayed with me while there were twists and turns, you know, like we had one film that was pretty much done and then we got the police interviews and then I edited for a full other year. And I was able to do that because it was like, Oh my God, we got this material. This whole movie is about to change. And people said, okay, we're going to keep supporting you to do it. Like having that kind of support and that kind of backing from incredible women, executive producers was amazing. So and also just driving down long roads with your producer going out of your mind. <laughs> um, you know, I like that too. So I don't know. It's going just, out of your mind because of the producer or? <laughs> oh, no, I love my producer. Stephen Lake, speaking of incredible white men, um, I have an amazing, amazing producer, Stephen Lake, who's 32 years old, who can hold any kind of technical detail and any kind of dramatic emotional director all of it his capacity to hold and support which is what a fil- what a producer actually does it's not just excel spreadsheets is also just the emotional support of the director i'm so lucky and steven is so brilliant and hilarious he's like a stand up comedian on the side so that's why we're losing our minds and cracking up together yeah so no i just have a lot of appreciation for for all of it actually Awesome. Well, I want to ask uh, one personal question, if that's okay, and you can feel free to, to decline answering. But you said that this documentary took years, um, right? The Steubenville case happened in 2012. Uh, and I know that you've probably been working on it since pretty close to that point. And, you know, being a survivor yourself, I, I'm wondering, how did you, <laughs> this is a little bit of a cheesy question, but how did you take care of yourself during this time? No, I don't think asking anyone how they're enacting self-care, especially during the past three years is cheesy. I feel like it's our survival essentially is like, how are we taking care of ourselves? Because we're truly living in such cataclysmic times. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, how did we take care of myself? I did a lot of stuff. I did like Reiki. I did salt. I floated in isolation tanks. Um, I doubled down on my therapy. I stopped drinking alcohol. I, you know, did all the things. I walked an hour and a half a day if I needed to. I, yeah, I looked for a lot of different modalities to deal, not just with being in that environment and taking it in, but I, I think the editing process for me was more brutal than the filmmaking process. Filming, absolutely. Do you mind me asking why? Just from a personal level, with filming, you're in the land of possibility. Anything is possible. Every, I mean, people say no to you, but then you go here and you do that and you just get more and you're in this sort of metaphysical space of possibility and you're just capturing and it's all... It's all a dream and it's all possible. And then you get into the editing room and it's like the triangle reverses and goes into this narrowing thing. And then it all becomes a series of choices and winnowing and narrowing there. So it's like going from the head, it's like the top chakra to the, to the bottom chakra. And you have to give birth and giving birth is going through a very tiny canal. So it's so painful and brutal and like all the things that all the decisions, all the possibilities, all the things that don't work, all of the challenges. I love people who love it. I'm in awe of editors who are just like master magicians who just love that process. And for me, I'm like, I hate having to say no to so many things. I just want to say yes. 
so yeah, it's that. I mean, that's just from the filmmaking perspective. I, I want to die. I wanted to die every day. Well, I'm glad that you did not. And I'm glad we have editors out there who were able to take that on for you. Thank you so much for your time today. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I so appreciate the time and money and blood and effort that went into this film. Listeners, like I said, it's, it is incredible. So I'm wondering if we could just end on you telling our listeners where they can find this, where, where, where they can find out more about Roll Red Roll. Oh, awesome. Yes. And it's been such a pleasure. We are opening um, in New York City this Friday, March 22nd for a two week run at the Film Forum. And then April 5th, we open in Los Angeles at the Lemley Theater in Santa Monica. We are going to be the season opener for PBS uh, June 17th. We will be kicking off POV's season and then we're also if you're in the UK we are going to be on Storyville on the BBC and then we'll be wider release after after the broadcast and just also to let you know that um, you can keep up with us at rollredrollfilm.com and all of our socials are rollredrolldoc so that's how you can find us great well I will definitely put that in the episode description so that listeners can go straight there and find uh, where to find you all Thank you so much, Nancy, for for your time here today, but also for your work and your lifelong commitment to this and for sharing your personal story. This has been such an honor for me. Thank you so much. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear us. Talking with Nancy was intriguing. I am so glad that she included the voices of positive bystanders like Sean McGee. Juxtaposed next to the recent Me Too movement, it is kind of incredible to see how much social media use has simultaneously changed drastically and somehow remained stagnant. By no means is Steubenville the only town in history to have been rocked by such a case. I hope you will consider going out and seeing the film, and if you choose not to, for whatever reason, I hope we all remember what appropriate interactions with each other online look like. If there's anything to be learned from Steubenville and the hundreds of other cases like it, it's that we have a long way to go to learn about humanizing humans. And no matter what you decide, always remember to take care of yourself. Your mental and emotional health is of the utmost importance and should always be prioritized. Thank you to the Alliance staff for supporting this podcast. I'm so glad we get to highlight stories just like this one. Thank you to Nikki Cruz, our social media genius, and to Alex Zeitz-Moskin, our director of development and communications, for all of your support on the podcast. And of course, a special, special thanks to Nancy Schwartzman for your time during a very, very busy press week. And of course, to all the amazing people who worked on Roll Red Roll. Finally, as always, we want to thank you for listening. We're so grateful for your listenership, and we hope you're enjoying the conversations that we're having. If you feel so inclined, it would be so amazing if you encouraged your friends to take a listen too. Word of mouth is the best way to get people to tune in, and we so appreciate those of you who have already started spreading the word. If you prefer to use social media to spread the word, please just make sure that you use our hashtag, hashtag SextalkHappyHour, so we can see how many of you are listening and sharing. You can tweet at us at NYCAASA or message us on Instagram at NYC Alliance. And again, make sure you use that hashtag, hashtag SextalkHappyHour, all one word. Thanks so much for listening again today, folks. Until next time, ciao.